Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's quite a privilege to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have all the wonderful assets and and blessings that you have bestowed upon every believer in this church age. And, Father, it is so superior to every other dispensation in human history that too often we, we forget, we take these things for granted. Father, we need to be reminded of how much you have given us and what a tremendous potential we have because of our position in Christ, because of all that you have given us because we have the completed canon of Scripture and because we have the uh, mind of Christ. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would be uh, challenged, get a greater perspective of your working in history and be able to have a great understanding, too, of how uh, flaws and fallacies enter into the teaching of the church throughout church history. Father, we also continue to pray for our nation. We thank you for the fact that we have continued to uh, have safety during this time of a heightened alert. We pray that you would continue to watch over us, protect us, uh, get information available to uh, the uh, intelligence services, to the security forces, that they might be able to disrupt and prevent attacks on this country. We pray for our servicemen overseas and serving in Iraq, Afghanistan, many other places, that you would watch over them, that you would uh, give them victory, and that you would uh, foil the plots of those who would destroy us, those who would do us harm. Our Father, we just commit this time to you for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began a little mini-series on the subject of tongues. Actually, it should be translated languages. The gift of tongues or gift of languages in the New Testament was one of the miraculous gifts, one of the temporary gifts that God gave the early church for a specific purpose. That purpose was that it was to serve as a sign to Israel of impending judgment because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. It gave them an opportunity to, of grace before judgment, an opportunity to respond to that sign. And if at all possible, they, if the nation had turned to Christ as Messiah, uh, at least the potential is there that it would have uh, changed history. Of course, they did not. History did not change. Uh, the Jews were judged 
through the Roman invasion and conquest in uh, 70 A.D., and Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Now, tongues has become a major issue, a major point of controversy in church history in in the present uh, time, specifically since the modern tongues movement began at the 1st of January 1901. It is a 20th century phenomenon. It is not what is found in the uh, early church. It's not what's found in the first century, despite the claims that are made by by many. Last time I began with an introduction, and we went through the history of the uh, tongues movement. We looked at what happened in the first century in terms of uh, historical data, not in terms of biblical data. We were just beginning that when our time ended uh, last week. We also looked at the uh, historical data in the early church and through church history, demonstrating that the sign gifts cease. There is clearly indication of such, despite the fact that there are claims made by those who are in the Pentecostal charismatic camp that uh, in the early church these gifts did continue. There are flaws in their reasoning. There are flaws in their exegesis of some of those historical passages from the early church fathers. And I just gave us a little sample of some of those quotes last time in order to demonstrate that position. I have taken a lot of time to study this in the past. I have read uh, throughout through many of the early church fathers, and I have found nothing to substantiate the view that miracles, tongues, healings, the, the sign gifts were to continue through the church age. We know that in the panorama of spiritual gifts, that there was at least one spiritual gift which all must admit, though not all do admit, was a temporary gift, and that was the gift of apostle. Because one of the qualifications to be an apostle was that you were a witness of the teachings of Christ, of his resurrection, and you were personally commissioned to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul was the last of that one. He was born, as he claimed, one out of time. Uh, because the Lord Jesus Christ had to make a special post-resurrection appearance to the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ does not make any more post-resurrection appearances, so anyone who claims to be an apostle or to have the gift of apostle is someone who is just living in a neurotic or psychotic delusion. So we have certainty that one spiritual gift is temporary. Prophecy is also a temporary gift, which we will get into as we get into our passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. But tongues, healings, miracles, interpretation of tongues are also temporary gifts. Now, last time I went through the history, the background, the history of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. This time I want to begin looking by looking at various passages in the New Testament that speak of tongues. And the first place that we'll go is in the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, 17. Mark 16, 17. Now the first thing that we have to deal with when we come to the last chapter of Mark is a recognition that this is a a passage called the long ending of Mark. And this begins, actually, in verse 
14 of this chapter in Mark from Mark 16:14 down to the end of the chapter this section or actually it's Mark uh Mark 16:9 uh and following these verses are not found in a number of manuscripts of the New Testament. It's a highly debated issue as to whether or not Mark 16, 9 through 20 actually belongs in Scripture. There is this long ending. There, are, there is also a shorter ending that shows up in some manuscripts. Now, this morning, I do not want to get into an extended discussion of textual criticism and whether or not these verses should be in the Scripture. We will assume for the sake of argument that they are part of the original text and deal with it on that basis. So let's begin by looking at uh, verse 14 just to pick up the context. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had had risen. So the timing of this is after the resurrection, shortly after the resurrection, and verse 14 deals with his first appearance to the eleven, which we know was later in the day of that first resurrection Sunday. Then in verse 15, he says to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Incidentally, this verse is one where a number of people will go to try to say that baptism is part of salvation. But notice the point of condemnation has to do with belief or not belief. So baptism here, which would have been understood as water baptism, believer's baptism, after salvation, which is simply a picture of positional truth. It has no saving value. It doesn't bestow grace. It has no value for spiritual growth or the spiritual life. It was simply a training aid in the early church for teaching positional truth and teaching and picturing the uh, spiritual realities of our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So Mark said, or the, the verse says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It is belief only that is effective for salvation. But the baptism in the early church was something that normally followed fairly soon after faith alone in Christ alone. And then in verse 17, our Lord says, And these signs will follow those who believe. And this is simply a historical statement that these signs will appear. If they appear once in history, this prophecy is fulfilled. If it appears one time in history, it doesn't have to be something normative. This is one of the major interpretive problems in with the Pentecostal and Charismatics is that they think that all these statements are normative. That is something to be expected in the experience of every single believer throughout church history at all times. And that's it's not true in, in the book of Acts, and it's not true subsequent to Acts. Uh, these signs did not follow everyone who believed. See, that's how they read the text. It says, these signs will follow those who believe. Those is a restrictive uh, pronoun. It's not everyone. It is those. If it only happens to one or two, 
or three or four, then it has been fulfilled. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. Well, there's clear examples in the book of Acts where of the apostles casting out demons. So that's fulfilled in Acts. It doesn't have to go beyond that. They will speak with, it says, new tongues. It's just the gift of languages. That happened on the day of Pentecost. That part, it was fulfilled then. They will... Uh, take up serpents. Now, some try to make this verb uh, stretch it and push it to try to say pick up serpents, and this is the basis for your uh, those those groups that are snake handlers, and you run into those in the Appalachian Hills or Ozark Hills or out in West Texas where they try to demonstrate their spirituality by uh, picking up uh, rattlesnakes and copperheads and various other kinds of venomous serpents. And, and there's a number of people who get bit a number of times, and there are many who have died uh, doing that. But that is not what this verse is talking about. In fact, it's fulfilled in the book of Acts when the apostle paul is uh, on his journey to to rome when he is when they're shipwrecked on malta and he's collecting firewood and he is uh, this is in acts 28:5 through 8 where he's, as he's picking up the firewood he is bitten by a viper so that is fulfilled historically in the book of acts uh then the next clause if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them and that is not mentioned. That is the only statement in this list that is not given a historical fulfillment in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means we weren't told of that event. Then the last is they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And that, of course, was filled, fulfilled during the book of Acts. So this is not talking about something that has to go on generation after generation after generation in church history. It is simply talking about the fact that the early in the early church, the ministry of the apostles would be uh, supplied with certain miraculous credentials. Once that was established, it did not need to be established again. The apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians 2.20, are the foundation of the church. And a foundation in the analogy only uh, is laid once. You don't lay a foundation uh, again and again and again. It is laid once. So this is these verses in Mark 16 relate to the early church. Then we come to our second passage, which is Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, where we spent a brief time last week. Acts 2 is the historical inception of the spiritual gift of speaking in languages. The episode in Acts 2 is describes the birth of the church. The birth of the church. Prior to Acts 2, there is no church. Prior to Acts 2, believers were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Prior to Acts 2, believers were not baptized by means of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Prior to Acts 2, there was no church. There was no body of Christ. Uh, believers were not filled with with the Holy Spirit. The pe- uh, believers did not have spiritual gifts. All of that begins in Acts 2. Now, as we go through this section, I want to back up, look at the context again, and then we will make some uh, observations. In Acts 2, or in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven in verses 9 through 11. He tells the uh, 
disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is in Acts 1-4, to wait for the promise of the Father. And he uh, prophesies that the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit will come not many days from now in verse 5. In verse 7, he says, he, or in verse 6, they ask the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his authority in verse 7. Then in verse 8, he goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And there is a contrast there. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you will receive power. See, the question was, will, will the kingdom come? And there is the supposition by some that the kingdom did begin. It was inaugurated at the first advent. But it's clear by their question that the kingdom is not there. They know it's not there. They're saying, Lord, is it at this time that there will be the kingdom? And the answer is no. And one of the arguments for the continuation of the sign gifts is that in the church age we're living in an inaugurated uh, form of the kingdom. And so we will experience certain manifestations of the Holy Spirit because we're in this inaugurated form of the kingdom. And it's called the already not yet view of the kingdom, that it's already begun, but it's not yet fully here. So there is the these gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and miracles are sort of foretastes of the millennial kingdom. And that is a completely fallacious position. And it's clear from the text that the disciples knew they weren't in the kingdom and were not in the kingdom. Then Peter carried out his little farce where he is going to uh, elect someone with the spiritual gift of, of uh, apostle. And this shows a fallacy people often run into. You do not elect or choose people to have a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is distributed by by God the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus Christ who appoints an apostle. It is not the church that appoints apostles. And so they went through this charade where they had this election of Matthias. And the last thing we read in verse 26 of chapter 1 is that they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And about where we ended last time, I pointed out that in the first verse of chapter 2, we read, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And the general rule of grammar is that a pronoun refers to its nearest possible antecedent. And since they is a plural pronoun, the nearest possible antecedent or, or plural noun that precedes it is the last word of the first chapter, apostles. So it is only the apostles when they are gathered in one place, probably breakfast, that suddenly the Holy Spirit descended upon them in verse 2. So what we see here, let's make start making a list of what we observe that took place on the day of Pentecost. First of all, they, they do not pray for the Holy Spirit. Second thing we notice is they do not expect the overt signs. Third, they do not expect 
to speak in languages. This is not something that was anticipated. Jesus Christ had promised that the Holy Spirit would come, but they did not know precisely when that would take place, and it came upon them as something of a surprise. Verse 2 we read, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. This is just tongues of flame appeared in the air over each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the next thing we observe is they not only did not expect to speak in tongues, but there were two physical uh, manifestations that accompanied this that had to do with sight and sound. In terms of sound, they heard a a mighty wind. And in terms of sight, they saw these tongues of flame. And the reason there is the sound and the sights is because the reception of the Holy Spirit is a non-visible event. It's a spiritual event. So in order to indicate that something is happening in the spiritual realm, God... uh, a cause there to be this accompaniment of sights and sounds with the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, as they began to speak in other languages, it was as the Spirit gave them utterance. The fact that we have this word utterance and this speaking indicates that it is a gift of speech, not a gift of hearing. Every now and then you'll hear, you'll have somebody say, well, maybe everybody just heard them in their own language. No, it was a gift of speaking where the Holy Spirit enabled someone to speak in a language they had not gone through the normal processes of acquiring. They just suddenly and miraculously began to speak in Aramaic or in Arabic or in in a Coptic or some other language, and they did not know precisely what they were saying. Now we read in verse 5, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And these would have been Jews who were living throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. These were the Jews in the Diaspora. After the Jews returned to Jerusalem in about 530... uh, 536 B.C., not all Jews returned. Many Jews stayed in Gentile countries, so they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They had uh, commercial operations throughout the not only the Roman Empire, but also the Parthian Empire. But Jewish males were required by the Mosaic Law to be present in the temple at three feasts during the year. These were called the three annual uh, pilgrimage feasts, and they were Passover, uh, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement. And so there would have been 150 to 200,000 people, according to Josephus, in Jerusalem during this time. So it was crowded, and there were men there and women and families who had traveled from all over the Roman Empire and beyond. 
And they would be going to the temple for the celebration that day. And verse 6 we read, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. So it was a sound. It was an objective sound. If you had had your tape recorder there, you could have recorded it. And it wasn't heard just in the upper room. It was a sound that reverberated throughout the city. Everyone heard this sound of rushing wind. It sounded as if a tornado had come through downtown Jerusalem. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Now, why were they confused? This is explained in the next verse. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, the confusion wasn't because they didn't understand what was being said. They might not have understood what was being said in some other languages that they did not know, but they were uh, amazed because they recognized these men as Galileans. They understood the accent. There was, they were talking in Aramaic or in Koine Greek as well as speaking in uh, la- uh, the miraculous language that the Holy Spirit gave them. And different apostles had different uh, had different languages. And then we come to verse eight and we read that their question, that is the question of those who were hearing them, said, How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then we have a list. And there is a list of some 15 geographical areas here, Parthians and Medes and Elamites. And Parthia was the old Persian empire. This was the area to the east of Israel, the Parthians were enemies of the Romans. The the Parthian Empire at this time covered the areas of modern Iraq, modern Iran, uh, modern Afghanistan, uh, and bordered just to the east of what we would call today as, as modern Jordan. So much of that area was the Parthian Empire. Well, down in the lower uh, Mesopotamian Valley, you have the area of Media and the Elamites. This would be roughly in the area of Iran today. And then there are those who dwelled in Mesopotamia. That's that same area. Mesopotamia means the area between the two rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, that entire area had been part of the Parthian Empire. Before that, it was part of the Persian Empire. Remember when we studied in Daniel, we saw that that the Persian Empire was defeated by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and that occurred approximately 330 B.C. And so from that time on, Greek was known in that part of the world, but the lingua franca, that is the everyday language of the marketplace in the Parthian Empire, was Aramaic. The same was true in uh, in Israel, in Judea. Now, we don't know if the ancient Median language was still spoken. It probably uh, was rare. Same thing with Elamite. And there are many scholars who believe that these, even though you have three groups here, or four groups here, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, that that would really represent perhaps one language group, and the native language in which they were born may may be Aramaic, or it may refer to uh, an ancient uh, Persian language, but it's probably not four different language groups. It probably represents only one. Then again, in Judea, that would have been Aramaic. Uh, Cappadocia, 
Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. That's five areas that were all regions in what is today uh, modern Turkey, which at that time was a- called Asia Minor. And in that area had been conquered by the Greeks under Alexander the Great back in the 4th century B.C. So that area had been under Greek domination for almost uh, 400 years. So the folks who lived there probably did not still speak the ancient Phrygian, uh, Pamphylian, or Cappadocian dialects, but they all spoke Greek. There may have been one or two of those. We can't be absolutely certain. Maybe one or two of those represented a a different uh, dialect. But at the most, there might have been two or three, not five or six. Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Now, in Egypt, they spoke an, uh, an ancient uh, a sort of a, a form of Coptic that was in between ancient Egyptian and uh, uh, the Coptic that developed a few centuries later. Libya was a province of Rome, and uh, or excuse me, Cyrene in Libya was a province of Rome, and so those who lived in Cyrene spoke Latin. Then there were visitors from Rome, which of course spoke Latin, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans from the Isle of Crete spoke a form of Greek and Arabs. So there was an Arabic, an early Arabic language that was spoken. So it, this whole list of 15 different groups may represent as few as five different languages. Some years ago, uh, Dr. Gleason Archer, who taught Old Testament at the uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and who himself knew, knew I think, close to 20 languages. Uh, Dr. Archer made the comment that there were only 11 languages here. Now, I have tried over the years to back that up and determine how many groups were here, and there's just so little written on this. In fact, no one in any of the commentaries on the book of Acts that I'm familiar with ever attempts to identify the language groups here. So it's very difficult to nail down exactly how many languages were here, but I would say somewhere between 5 and 11 languages were spoken, not not a huge number of languages. And the result is in verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now some just laughed and mocked and said, well, they're, they're all drunk which is what caused uh, Peter to respond, and the, or the occasion of his response, given in verse 14. And there we read that Peter, standing up with the eleven, which seems to suggest that Matthias is not with them, it's only the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. And he says, and Joel 2, 28 to 29 states, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. So if you were to go back to Joel, 
you would see that the prophecy in Joel has to do with the day of the Lord, which is the end, which is occurring at the end of the tribulation period. And the description in Joel 2 takes place. We'll have the rapture here. Let's draw this diagram. Here's the rapture. At this point, you have the start of Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year period of the tribulation, which ends with the second coming of Christ. During the last part of the tribulation, we don't know how exactly how long it will last, you have the campaign of Armageddon, the military campaign leading up to the battle of Armageddon. All of that is what is discussed in the preceding section in Joel 2. And then we read after these things. Well, what is the these things referred to in context of Joel 2? It's the Armageddon campaign. So it, we read, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So what is Joel talking about? He is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen in past studies that that relates to the giving of revelation. It is relates to the giving of revelation. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy a revelatory gift. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Now, he's talking about prophecy. He's talking about seeing visions and dreams. Did that occur on Acts, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? No, those events did not take place on the day of Pentecost. Then we read in verse 19, I will show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Did that occur on the day of Pentecost? There were tongues of fire, but not in the sense that it's described here, signs in the heavens above and earth below. That will be pictured during the last series of judgments in the tribulation. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That did not take place on the day of Pentecost, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Joel 2:28 and following is quoted in full by Peter. But there's a tendency among New Testament writers at times when they quote certain passages from the Old Testament, they quote the whole passage just to make one simple point. And the point that that um, Peter is making here is that the events on the day of Pentecost are the same kind of events that are prophesied is taking place by the Holy Spirit at the end of the tribulation period. So it is not a specific fulfillment of prophecy. He is not saying this is the fulfillment of Joel 2. Because if you look at Joel 2, there's a number of things mentioned that will take place that did not take place on the day of Pentecost. What did take place on the day of Pentecost was speaking in languages that is not mentioned in Joel at all. So all Peter is saying is this is like 
what Joel said would take place in the tribulation. So we can see that the Holy Spirit produces certain kinds of phenomena at the end of the tribulation period, and this is the same kind of phenomenon produced by the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles. So Acts 2 is not saying that it is a fulfillment of Joel 2. This is the primary event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, distribution of spiritual gifts, and the gift of tongues. Now notice, Jews are present. When we come to an understanding of the purpose of tongues, it's designed to as a sign of judgment. That doesn't mean a Jew had to necessarily be present. It doesn't mean that they were giving the gospel. See, it, it, their, their statement was that they were pr- praising the, the mighty works of God. It does not say, it does not say that they were necessarily just giving the gospel. They were uh, describing what God had done. They were probably, I would say in Acts 2, they were clearly uh, giving the gospel, but that did not have to be uh, restricted to that particular uh, operation. It was not, the gift wasn't given as a means of evangelism. That's the point I'm making. The gift of tongues was not given as a means of evangelism, but it was given so that Jews would hear doctrine taught in Gentile languages, and that would be a sign of judgment. We will come back and look at that in detail eventually. Right now we just want to go through and look at the different times that tongues took place in the gift in the book of Acts. So let's turn to the next event in Acts, Acts chapter 8. Now tongues are not mentioned in Acts 8. That's important to recognize. See what the reason I'm going through Acts is because the Pentecostal charismatic movement wants to make the events of Acts normative for the Christian life. And what I'm showing here is that there's no pattern. There's no normal pattern. Each time you have some sort of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is a different series of events and a different pattern. In Acts 8, 5 through 25, we have the next event. And this is called the Samaritan Pentecost because it takes place in Samaria. Now, remember, Samaria is that area that lies between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, and in between the southern uh, province of Galilee and the northern province, you have some area. So you can always remember where Samaria is. And the Samaritans were a mixed breed of people. That was a slow burn. Somebody finally woke up and caught the pun. Uh, The Samaritans were a mixed breed. The Assyrians, after they had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., had resettled many different people into that area. So they were a mixed ethnic population. They were partially Jewish and mostly Gentile. And the Jews, the pure ethnic Jews in Judea, looked down their nose with tremendous prejudice against the Samaritans. In fact, if they were going to go from uh, Jerusalem to Galilee, they would cross over to the east side of the, Gordon, of the Jordan River and go north through Perea up to 
and up to Galilee and then cross back over to the west side of the Jordan. They would not take the direct route of going through uh, Samaria. They hated the Samaritans, and the, and the Samaritans had set up, remember back in the, or excuse me, the northern kingdom, when they had separated uh, under Rehoboam back uh, after Solomon's death, when, they had, when the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom, they had set up a separate place of worship in the north near Mount Gerizim, and they had designated that as the place of worship in competition with the temple in Jerusalem. So there had always been, or at least since since uh, the 10th century B.C., there had been this competition between those in the north and those in the south, and it extended even into the Samaritan, uh, into the New Testament period when there were Samaritans living in that area, and they had a, they had a competitive uh, Judaism, competitive. Uh, and in competition with those in Judea. So you must understand that to understand the background of what takes place in Acts 8. Well, let's begin in about verse uh, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So this is Philip. He's not an apostle. He is one of the deacons that were appointed in the church in Acts 5. And he is an evangelist. He goes to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. See, that's a fulfillment of Mark 16. There's demons cast out. There's physical healing. And they are saved at this point. There is salvation in, in Acts 8, 6. The multitudes heeded the things spoken by, by Philip. So in, in Samaria you have X point where there's salvation. Then following salvation, but at that point there's no Holy Spirit at all. No baptism of the Holy Spirit, no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no spiritual gifts. There are miracles that accompany Philip's preaching to give, uh, uh, to get, provide his credentials. And then let's skip down to verse 14. Now when the apostles were who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God that indicates they're saved, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, Peter and John are the two leaders of the apostles. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So some time goes by, and then Peter and John come and they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, there was no prayer for the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit just came suddenly upon them. In Acts 8, there is, uh, there is a prayer for the, for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they receive the Holy Spirit after, at some time after salvation. So it is a post salvation event. Then we go on to read verse 16, For as yet 
He, that is the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that would be water baptism. Then they laid hands, the they there refers to Peter and John. They laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the reception of the Holy Spirit has to do with the laying on of hands, which is a symbol of identification by Peter and John. What's going on here? Remember the background of competition between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom for two different places of, of worship, for two different temples, for two different priesthoods, and the bias and prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans later on. And what the Holy Spirit is doing here and what God is doing to protect the early church from a competitive spirituality is he is showing that the Samaritans uh, receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that the believers in Jerusalem do under the authority of the apostles because the apostles are the foundation of the church. So it's transitional here. And this is what's taking place. God is going to show in Acts that each major group of people, each major group of people receive the Holy Spirit from the apostles, emphasizing the unity of the church. And it shuts down any attempt on the part of the Samaritans or any other group to say that somehow we're independent of the apostles in Jerusalem. So Peter and John come, and they... uh lay hands on them, and it's only at that time that they received the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. We'll get past that. And we just emphasize the importance there. So uh, some observations on the Samaritan Pentecost. First of all, there was a lapse of time between conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and reception of the Holy Spirit. Second point, we saw that they were previously saved because they received the Word. The third observation is they received the Holy Spirit through prayer and the laying on of hands by Peter and John. Fourth, there's no indications that the Samaritans prayed for this experience. Fifth, there's no indication that Philip prayed or laid hands on them. And then sixth, there is no mention of speaking in languages. And there is the complete absence of the other signs of Acts 2. There's no rushing sound of wind. There's no tongues of fire. There is a, a, a complete di- difference. The only thing that is similar is that they receive the Holy Spirit and the apostles from Jerusalem, Peter and John, are present there. So the so-called Samaritan Pentecost was designed to show that what happened there is also under apostolic authority, and the Samaritans cannot claim an independent branch of Christianity. The next significant event in Acts is the salvation of the Apostle Paul in his former name is birth name Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, and there's no mention of tongues whatsoever in relationship to Paul's conversion. Then we come to Acts chapter 10 and the salvation of Gentiles, the inclusion of Gentiles into the body of Christ. And this, the key passage here, starts down in verse 44, Acts 10, 44 to 48. There we read, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard 
the word. So in verses 34 down to 43, Peter is giving his message. He is giving the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And while he is teaching, and they're listening and taking notes and paying attention, the Holy Spirit suddenly came upon them. Now, what do we have in common? We have Peter in Acts 2. We have Peter again in in Acts 8. And now we have Peter again with Gentiles in Caesarea in Acts 10. It's the unity of the body of Christ, and it's all being accomplished under the authority of the apostles, the foundation of the church. So Cornelius isn't praying. He isn't tarrying or waiting for the Holy Spirit. He is not expecting the Holy Spirit or anything to happen. He is not seeking the gift of tongues. He is not trying to speak in tongues. He is simply listening to Peter while he is teaching. And suddenly the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And verse 45, and those of the circumcision, that is, these were Jewish believers who had been circumcised, who believed, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, see, at this time the Jews are thinking that the Gentiles are a second-class group, and they think that you have to be still, that you have to be circumcised and in some sense have a relationship with the Mosaic Law in order to reap all the benefits of, of, uh, of salvation. Not necessarily just simply to be saved, but all of the uh, additional blessings. And they're just amazed that these Gentiles who haven't been circumcised, these Gentiles who have not come under the law, are uh, receive the Holy Spirit and all the benefits and all the blessings of the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews have. In other words, this is showing that there's not going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile in the new body of Christ in the church. And so we read in verse 45, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with languages and magnify God. Now, notice it doesn't say giving the gospel. They magnified God, but there were Jews present. So you had Jews present uh, with with the Samaritans, you had Jews present on the day of Pentecost, you have Jews present here. Each time the presence of Jews uh, here, the here doctrine being expressed through Gentile languages. And so these Gentiles are speaking in languages, Gentile languages they had not previously learned. And so it was... Uh, an indication that they were just as much a part of the body of Christ as the Jews. And it is evidence with speaking in tongues. So what we see here is that they believe, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they speak in languages. But there are no other signs. There's no rushing of wind. There's no tongues of fire. They're not praying for the Holy Spirit and baptism uh, water baptism comes after the reception of the Holy Spirit. In the, with the Samaritans, you had uh, water baptism preceding the uh, Holy Spirit. So there's a different order of events. Then we come to the next 
key event in the coming of the Holy Spirit, which has to do with a group of disciples from John the Baptist in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And we begin in verse 1. First seven verses describe this event. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So they have believed, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Paul said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So the only baptism they had known about was John's baptism. Incidentally, this indicates that John the Baptist's ministry had a widespread impact. Here we are in Ephesus, some 30 years after the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry, and you have this group of, uh, of believers who are still, in the sense, Old Testament saints. Now, let's put this together. At Pentecost, you had the apostles and the foundation of the church. In Acts 8, you have the inclusion of Samaritans. The church is not just for Jews. It includes these horrible half-breeds, the mixed race of Samaritans. Third, you have the inclusion of the Gentiles. Not only is is, uh, the body of Christ for Jews, but those horrible dogs, the Gentiles, are also included in the body of Christ. And now this fourth group represents Old Testament saints. And so in each of these events, we're seeing that there is a unity in the body of Christ, and there's not going to be any emphasis, any distinction drawn with relationship to the spiritual life in terms of ethnic background, as there was in the Old Testament, with, a, with an emphasis on being Jewish. That's why when you look at the passages on the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we read, well, we're all baptized into the body of Christ where there is neither Jew nor Greek. It is not an emphasis anymore. There is a unity that is based on uh, what the Holy Spirit does at salvation in entering everyone into the body of Christ, and no distinction is made on whether or not you have a physical Jewish background. So these John the Baptist disciples are still Old Testament saints. They haven't received the Holy Spirit. They, they're still uh, in John's baptism. They haven't heard that Jesus has come yet. They haven't heard about the Messiah. They're still operating on John's message. So uh, Paul says in verse 4, John indeed baptized with a baptism, that is with a baptism, and baptism always indicates identification, with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So this is the first time they've heard that John's prophecy that one would come after him who would be greater than him is fulfilled. And so verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they go through water baptism, post-salvation water baptism, which is simply a picture of positional truth and identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And then verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So in this event, there is no indication again that Paul prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit or that they prayed for themselves. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues is unexpected. They spoke in in known languages, and there is no mention of the other phenomena of the sound of rushing wind or the or the tongues of fire. So what we see in each of these passages is that a similar events take place. With the apostles on the first day of Pentecost at the birth of the church, the Samaritans, and I think that one of the reasons the Samaritans do not speak in languages is because they are still half Jewish. Then the Gentiles are going to speak in, in languages, and the Old Testament saints represented by John the Baptist disciples also speak in languages. And each of these groups is tied together by the apostles. Peter with the uh, day of Pentecost, the Samaritans in Acts 8, the Gentiles at Cornelius in Acts 10, and then Paul with these Old Testament saints in Ephesus. This is the last time you have a mention of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It occurred post-salvation in each of these groups because it was going to come at the hands of the apostles to show that each of these groups is going to be brought together into the unity of the body of Christ. Now, outside of of, um, 1 Corinthians 13, there is one other place where Folks will go to see, to try to show that there is, uh, speaking of tongues that's supposed to be normal for the church, and this is in a passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans 8, 26. And in Romans 8, 26 we read, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, there are those who come along and say, see, this is talking about a Holy Spirit language. No, it doesn't say anything about a language in the passage. Observe what it says. It talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for each and every believer, but with groanings which can't be uttered. You know, that means you're not going to hear it. That means it's inaudible. And what this passage is actually saying is that in the believer's life, there are times when we do not even know how to pray. We do not know what to speak. We do not know how to utter our prayer requests. And it is the Holy Spirit who makes intercession for us. And we're told in verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He, that is the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So what verse 26 is talking about is the intercessory ministry of God the Holy Spirit in prayer for the believer. It is inaudible to the believer. It is unheard. It is not a an audible, vocal intercession. There's The groanings here just have to do with the fact, indicating that there are times when we're just... So overwhelmed, and in essence, we're groaning and at the events of life, but it's not talking about speaking in tongues. This verse has nothing to do with that whatsoever. 
Now that takes us up to uh, background studies, takes us through first through Acts, and brings us to our passage in First Corinthians thirteen verse eight, which we will get into next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be uh, give greater appreciation of how the Holy Spirit worked in the foundation and the birth of the church. The church is the body of Christ, which is uh, designed to be the bride of Christ eventually and to represent Jesus Christ on the earth. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You do not need to reform your life. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to be involved in any ritual. The only thing that saves is faith alone in Christ alone. It is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. Therefore, you do not need to do anything except except to believe, to receive that free gift as your own. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we need to learn from this study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.